This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. And today we're going to talk about a topic that you may not be as familiar with, but it deals with a lung nodule program. We are delighted that we have with us Dr. Ranjit Nair. And Dr. Nair really has a long list of credentials. He's board certified by the American Board of Internal Medicine and Pulmonary Diseases, also in critical care and sleep medicine and practices internal medicine at Medical City, Fort Worth. Dr. Nair, welcome to the show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your program. Many of our listeners may not understand pulmonary nodules. Can you set the stage by explaining what they are? Absolutely. So I would like to think that pulmonary nodules are small clumps of cells in the lungs. Most of these nodules are scar tissue from previous infections. Lung nodules do not cause symptoms, and they're usually found on CAT scans of the chest or abdomen and are what we call incidental findings, which means that we were investigating a different diagnosis and noted to have nodules on the CAT scan. You mentioned in your answer previous infections. Do you mean like pneumonia, strep throat, What type of infections many times could create these nodules? Great question. So the infections, as you pointed out, are primarily things like pneumonia. Even uh, patients may have experienced walking pneumonia and even previous exposures to viral illnesses. And COVID-19 has also known to cause pulmonary nodules. What about the flu, a severe case of the flu? Yes, a severe case of the flu can also cause pulmonary nodules just as any other viral illness. Who really is at risk? Is it all ages, all people? Yes. um, As mentioned, patients who are at risk for developing nodules include those patients who had previous lung infections. But I'd particularly like to point out a specific patient population, such as patients who are longtime smokers, And we define long-time smokers as those that have smoked a pack of cigarettes a day for 20 years or longer at a higher risk for pulmonary nodules. The reason why we think this is is that the cigarette smoke tends to irritate the cells in the lungs, which causes them to change their structure. One analogy I like to use is that prolonged exposure of the sun may cause the skin to develop freckles or moles. These structural changes are initially benign, but will be closely monitored by the dermatologist to make sure they do not transition to skin cancer. Similarly, pulmonary nodules are monitored by pulmonologists like myself to ensure the nodules do not transition to lung cancer. You know, you made a good point talking about the smoking. Maybe it's still too early and not enough data. Do you think vaping could have the same impact? Yes, I do. After our experience with the many years that vape has been out, we are seeing a higher incidence of nodules and what we call ground glass infiltrates, which is just suggestion of inflammation on the lungs. And many of my colleagues may argue can be worse than 
cigarette smoking. You know, once you detect a nodule in a patient, does it mean it's cancer or will it eventually become cancer? It is important to note that most lung nodules are not lung cancer. Various factors are used to determine the predest probability of a nodule developing into lung cancer. These factors include smoking history, location of the nodule, shape, and size of the nodule. Our team at Medical City Fort Worth is available to help patients risk stratify these lung nodules. Do you have patients that have never smoked, but they still have lung nodules? Yes, we do. One of the things that is unfortunate, yet usually these patients are safe in the sense that it is likely benign nodule, and that those are the patients we like to risk stratify through our program to help reassure them that it is a benign nodule. Do nodules tend in any way to be hereditary? For example, let's assume one of your parents had nodules. Does that mean you're at higher risk? Generally, there is no genetic component to pulmonary nodules, yet there are some diseases such as autoimmune diseases that do have a genetic component that may cause pulmonary nodules, such as rheumatoid arthritis, sarcoidosis, and other autoimmune diseases, which may have a genetic component, which can contribute to pulmonary nodules. You know, once you detect a nodule in a patient, and I know each patient's different and each treatment plan is different, but generally when you detect a nodule, what are the next steps for the patient? Once we risk stratify the patient based on those factors that I mentioned, the next decision-making is to determine whether a biopsy needs to be performed. Now, once you perform the biopsy, let's assume it's benign. Do you do surgery? Is there anything you do, or do you kind of monitor the situation? Once the biopsy is performed and it is benign, we continue to monitor serial CAT scans. Now let's assume that you detect it's cancer. What then would be the next step? So the next step would be involving our thoracic surgeons for resection of the nodule in an attempt to cure disease, to cure the lung cancer. You know, I know uh, Medical City Fort Worth has a pulmonary room, and you have a specialized robotic equipment that you use. Can you explain to our listeners, one, this robotic technology and how it really helps in the treatment of pulmonary nodules? I'm glad you asked that we're very excited to introduce at Medical City Fort Worth a robotic-assisted endoluminal platform for minimally invasive peripheral lung nodule biopsy. This technology is known as the ION technology, and this allows us to diagnose lung cancer sooner and with greater accuracy. We at Medical City Fort Worth offer a less invasive, high-tech technique to biopsy lung tissue for lung cancer or other diseases. When a lung nodule changes in size or shape, our ION endoluminal system helps improve accuracy and precision during the peripheral lung nodule biopsy. So you actually use it as you're performing the biopsy? That's correct. What I, as the programmer, will use our remote equipment to advance the device 
deep into the areas of the lung that we have not been able to see with traditional bronchoscopy. Traditional bronchoscopy requires me to hold the scope and navigate through the lumens of the lung to get to the area of interest. Yet traditional bronchoscopy does not allow the preciseness and accuracy available as the robot does. We're hearing about this new lung nodule program at Medical City Fort Worth, talking with internal medicine physician, Dr. Ranjit Nair. This new robotic technology that can help detect and even remove potential lung cancer while it is still benign. The whole interview is on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're continuing this fascinating conversation with Dr. Ranjit Nair, internal medicine physician at Medical City Fort Worth, about lung nodule detection and removal before it becomes cancerous. You may know somebody to whom this applies, and if you do, send them to our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare, and our YouTube channel as well. Steve? Going back a little bit to some of the treatment, once you've done the biopsy and you use the robotic, are there any forms of like radiation treatment that can be used in lieu of surgery? Yes. Our robotic bronchoscopy can allow us to place titanium beads around the tumor which will allow equipment such as single beam radiation therapy to precisely target the tumor and eliminate the tumor from the lung. Continued advancements in robotic surgery. How long has this specialized robotic equipment been available? The equipment has been available over the past three years, but has been in the works of studying and advancement over the last five to 10 years but available to the public over the last three years. You know, generally speaking, if people develop pulmonary nodules, do you have any idea what percent are generally smokers? Most literature suggests that roughly half of people who smoke over the age of 50 will have nodules on a CT scan of their chest. Wow. So 50% over the age of 50. Another good reason to seriously consider if you do smoke, a smoking cessation program. I'm going to now turn it over to Thomas. Dr. Nyer, what do you tell people who want to quit smoking? There are many available opportunities online to give advice on how to quit smoking. There are apps that help patients quit smoking, and there are various medications that also help quit smoking. Is that something that you do in your practice, smoking cessation? Absolutely. We offer counseling throughout our session, and we also offer various techniques. We describe all the techniques that are used for smoking cessation, whether it be something as simple as hiding cigarettes or even keeping cigarettes in areas that you will not necessarily go to. It may sound simple and silly, yet is effective. You could put them on top of your chimney. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I've yeah, heard, uh, yeah, like, okay, <laughs> honey, do we have a deal? You get the ladder out. I got to smoke. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've heard people say that nicotine is as addictive as heroin. That always leads me to a, one of my favorite stories. 
when I was in training in Newark, New Jersey, uh, you know, as most training, we're in one of the inner city hospitals. So we were working with a lot of heroin, crack, cocaine addicts who also had, whether lung nodules or COPD, et cetera. And one thing I would notice is the patients would always tell me it's easier to quit heroin and crack than it is cigarettes. This always impressed me, and I'll never forget how addictive cigarettes can be. Now, one could argue it's availability, but I would suggest in the areas that I was working, illegal drugs were just as available as cigarettes. Well, on that, on that note, great point. And that's coming from people who have experience with both. Exactly. What do you see as the main challenges then for patients in your practice who are trying to quit smoking? They can't do it. Like you said, the, you could put your cigarettes on the chimney, but there are some on every street corner times about four or six. So right. the availability is a big issue. What hurdles beside that do you see people really face that hold them back from success? Interestingly, it's family members. It's if the spouse is smoking, then it's one of the biggest challenges to get the patient that you're working with to quit smoking. Ideally, they're both on the same page, but frequently one is not convinced over the other. And that seems to be one of the challenges. And of course, there are medication options and it's something to the effect that patients may or may not be interested in adding more medication to their repertoire. Yeah, exactly. All right, you found a statistic that 50% of the people with these benign nodules were smokers. So that's 50% that are not. That's an interesting statistic because we hear a lot of lung cancer cases that somebody was never a smoker and they never had secondhand exposure. What's up with that? Yeah, one of the many things that we cannot predict about lung cancer is why some patients are more predisposed, especially non-smokers, to lung nodules than others. At this time, I can only suggest that ongoing research is being done to determine if there are genetic components to pulmonary nodules and lung cancer. But at this moment in time, we don't have a direct link. Now, we're talking about benign nodules, right? These are non-malignant. Correct. Does that mean they stay the same size and in the same place? Exactly. These nodules will stay the same size and same place, and some may even disappear. Um, we will watch them, depending on the risk factors, at minimum once a year, if not more, depending if they're an active smoker, it may be even more than that, like every six months. But this isn't like colon cancer where it can progress into a malignancy, correct? Pulmonary nodules can. Um, oh. Yes, I, I, I use the analogy how when we're exposed to the sun and we get a mole, well, that doesn't necessarily make it melanoma. But with time, we continue to watch, observe it. And with time, the mole can transition to melanoma. Similarly, the nodule could transition to lung cancer if not watched carefully by a board-certified pulmonologist. So when you go into this room with the robotic equipment and you go into somebody's lung, I guess my question is, at what point do you just snip it out? I'm thinking the same thing as the heart surgeon, the cardiologist who goes into the cath lab, determines there's a blockage and just fixes it, or the colon surgeon who sees a polyp and says, 
you know, let's go out. Do you do that? Yes. So when we're talking about resection of nodules, we also have to realize that we need as much lung as possible. And when we resect even the smallest of nodules, we have to be concerned that this can cause significant breathing issues. So we risk stratify these nodules to determine if this nodule is worth taking out, if you will. I would like to offer an analogy or a study, if you will, um, where they took patients and they looked at 25,000 patients with nodules and our 50,000 total pulmonary nodule patients, split them up into two groups. And one group, they excised all the nodules. And the other group, they continued to observe and monitor to determine if there was any transition to lung cancer. And what they noted was the patients who had a higher survival rate and mortality rate and morbidity, meaning complications afterwards, were the patients where they were observing and monitoring. Because we note that we, when we take out nodules, we, it's not a simple procedure, and it requires a thoracic surgeon as opposed to the robotic bronchoscopy, which I do. What I do is I can make the diagnosis and then allow, and then once the diagnosis is made, allow the thoracic surgeon to perform their procedure. But it would be like thinking of, let's say we have moles all over our body. Would we excise every single mole? Well, that might cause risk of infection, and um, it may even cause severe pain and suffering unnecessarily. Can these nodules then be monitored without the scope, or do you have to go in there with the scope in order to keep an eye on them if you don't excise them at the time? For the most part of, of all the nodules, that's what we do is we, conti- we observe them with serial CAT scans to ensure no growth. And after two years, if there's no change in this nodule, we stop uh, performing CAT scans and consider it a benign nodule. Wow. So that it grows to a certain size, doesn't spread, then you just, that's it. If it does not change in size at all. If it does change in size, then it must be biopsy. Now, this is very interesting. So I'm wondering, are there any early warning signs or any indications, perhaps during exercise or climbing the stairs, some kind of shortness of breath that would lead you to think that maybe you have one of these? Unfortunately, pulmonary nodules do not cause any symptoms. Thus, you would, most of them are unrecognized and only found by accident, if you will, uh, when imaging for other diagnoses. Is this something that we should be curious about, and, and like the lung equivalent of the colonoscopy without all the prep? <laughs> without a doubt, all smokers over the age of 50 should be concerned and should reach out to their primary care physician in regards to screening for pulmonary nodules. Will this be more common now as the technology has brought it to you? As we screen for pulmonary nodules, we've been able to reduce lung cancer deaths throughout the United States. And thus, I would suggest that pulmonary nodule screening with smokers over the age of 50 is a must and is becoming the standard of care throughout the United States. Dr. Ranjit Nair from Medical City, Fort Worth, thank you for that great information. We're going to pivot. You know anybody who needs a job? Well, healthcare is a viable career you should take a look at. Vanessa Walls from Children's Health, next. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare 
where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome to the Human Side of Healthcare. Delighted you're with us today, and we want to explore healthcare as a career. Delighted that we've got with us Vanessa Walls, who's the president of the Northern Market at Children's Health. I will also tell you she is a board member of the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for having me. You know, Vanessa, there are a lot of young people that are considering a career. They may think in terms of health care. We'd like to kind of pick your brain. How did you start your career in healthcare? Well, I'll, I'll tell you the quick version of a somewhat long story. I started in healthcare in the 80s when I chose to go to college for the specific reason of majoring in hospital administration. I had a, um, an uncle who was a hospital administrator. He and I were quite close. And that job just looked like something that spoke to me. It was a role where I could be involved with helping others and really see that benefit come to life every day. At the same time, I didn't think I was a really good caregiver. The, the business side of healthcare was where I felt like my strengths were. So I started out as a hospital administration major in college and then went on to get my master's uh, in the same field and then started in, uh, a residency at a children's hospital. Uh, the residency was required by my master's program and the rest is history. I've moved around to several different hospitals, large, small specialty hospitals, academic medical centers, all of those kinds of experiences just drove me through healthcare where I am today. We know you mentioned that you thought about healthcare administration as a career because of family members. Where were you living? I was living in Alabama at the time. I went to Auburn University, and that's where I majored uh, or started this adventure, if you will. Were there any courses that you took at the undergraduate level that helped you as you move to your master's? Yeah, I think there were a lot of courses from the undergraduate level. And granted, it was quite some time ago, but there were introductory courses of what is even just the simple language of healthcare. Um, how are the policy decisions that are made both at a federal level, a state level, what do those mean to the impact of delivery of healthcare? A lot of that basic stuff in the college side, the undergraduate side, prepares you for more advanced learning and more in-depth application at the graduate level. And so for me, I think that gave me a bit of a step up, if you will, because I knew even some of the acronyms that were out there, that healthcare is unique with all of our acronyms. You were fortunate in this sense. You had an uncle, you kind of knew about the business side, the administrative side, and you didn't choose clinical. Do you have any advice to people considering healthcare and they're kind of at a crossroads. Do I go clinical or do I go administrative? I do have some thoughts on that. I work a lot with young careerists as a mentor, and I hear a similar story from a lot of them that says, I was pre-med and my path changed for various reasons, or I was pre-nursing and my path changed for different reasons as well. And I never knew health administration was an option. I didn't even know it was a thing, if you will. And I think the key to that and what I, what I talk with them about is each of us has a different role to play in healthcare. Um, you may come to it with an intention of being in healthcare. You may come to it by accident 
because that's where the job was that you, you took at the right time. But the key is there are so many different components within healthcare, whether it be a bedside delivery, uh, care delivery, whether it be a support position or an administrative position, there is a great deal of variety and explore those options. Consider what those options might be because where you start may not be where you finish. But if you have a, a mentor or an opportunity to get a little visibility into the options of healthcare, I think you might find that there are many ways you could contribute too. You know, you also mentioned as you described your history of getting into healthcare where you worked in a children's hospital, and of course you're still with a very prominent children's health hospital system here. Why did you choose children? Well, I'll, I'll be completely honest with you, Steve. When I chose my residency, which was Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters in Norfolk, Virginia, my goal was just to get out of Alabama. And I did. Um, but once I got there, I realized how special children's hospitals are. They just feel different. They are joyful. We do everything we can to create an environment for the patient and the family in a very stressful time and to provide as much support as we can for our teams to do that. I didn't understand that so early in my career until I got to that children's hospital. And I left there and I worked in several other hospitals that we call adult hospitals. But my goal and my desire was to get back to a children's environment, a pediatric hospital environment, because it just allows me to feel and see our mission every day. And that's how I came back. This is my third children's hospital, and I've been here for over 11 years, and it's just very rewarding to see that side of healthcare. You know, that's tremendous. You know, I'm originally from Virginia, and I'm extremely familiar in the Norfolk area with that children's hospital. Had no idea you had done your residency yeah. there. I learned how to pronounce Norfolk, too. Oh, there you go. There you go. I understand. Now you're in North Texas. Talk about your current job. Well, my role, my official title is president of the Northern Market uh, with Children's Health. And what that means in truest sense is I'm responsible for all of our operations and relationships in this area that we call north of Dallas, primarily Collin and Denton County, and then the, the counties that are farther north from there. But Collin and Denton have the largest population concentration. And I also act as the administrator for our Children's Medical Center Plano Hospital. My role then gives me the opportunity to take strategy and for the market as a whole, as well as day-to-day -day operations of the hospital itself, and marry those. That's really rewarding for me because it's, um, it gives me a big picture view, as well as what I have to do today to make a difference for those patients and families. I see my role as the most important part of my role is to find ways to remove obstacles for the people who take care of patients. That's the most important part of what we do. And if I can um, either provide more resources, uh, we are expanding our facilities because we have more patient demand than, than our current facility can support. Removing those kinds of barriers for our caregivers is what I do. And that's what I think is my greatest obligation. You know, what a great answer. Removing barriers to help your caretakers do a better job. While listeners out there, they may say, what type of barriers are you talking about? Can you give a couple of examples? Sure. Um, you know, there are, there are simple things that you might think of that come down to maybe supply issues, making sure we have the right supplies at the right time for the care that they're going to deliver. Those things happen on a day-to-day -day basis. 
there are also obstacles for our our caregivers and our patients maybe that the service isn't available here and they have to travel farther to get that. So how do we bring those services to the table so that they can get those get care closer to home? I mentioned our expansion, our facility expansion. Today we are very busy, um, as you've probably heard in the news and other media about RSV and flu hitting the pediatric population pretty hard. So how do we remove the barrier of not enough space? And this expansion tower will allow us to do that. Another simple example is the staffing component. We are working really hard to raise our staffing levels so that our folks have the ability to take care of patients when they're here, but they have the downtime they need as well. So how do we staff up to make sure that we have exactly what we need to take care of patients? What a great answer. And I know over the past two, two and a half years, you've had a lot of barriers because of the pandemic that you've had to remove and try to help do the very best you can for all the patients you treat. Are there still some barriers still hanging on from the pandemic that you would like to remove? At this point, we have removed most of those in in many ways. COVID as a disease or as a condition is not the biggest thing we're seeing in pediatrics right now. And I don't think it is in most hospitals. What we learned in COVID was the importance of masking when you're dealing with particularly respiratory viruses and and conditions. And so we continue to use some of those kinds of things in effort to help keep our patients healthier, keep our employees healthier, and keep that ecosystem, if you will, available to take care of patients. But most of those things around barriers with COVID have kind of moved on. And the greatest challenge we have right now is life as we knew it before COVID looks a lot different. But we have learned from some of those things and and continue to use them to be successful today. You know, to help some of our listeners that are really considering healthcare seriously as a career, let's pretend like you're mentoring an individual that's just entering the healthcare field. Maybe they're doing their very first residency. What would be your advice on some skills they need to really work on? You mentioned the residency, and I think that's a key piece of it for anyone, particularly in health administration, who wants to look at healthcare, because it allows you the opportunity to be curious and to ask questions in a safe environment. In that type of an environment, I suggest don't rush the residency, take it all in, ask questions, ask for opportunities, ask for experiences, and learn in that time. If you're in a residency, that time usually is about a year and it goes away really fast. And at that time in your career, you're also thinking about, I need to get my first job. I want to get that first position. But don't rush the residency. It is truly a time of learning that that sets you up for the better opportunities in your career. The other piece I would say to that, though, is be intentional about how you do cultivate your career. I'm not suggesting that you have a five-year plan that says, I want to be in this position at the end of five years. I am suggesting that maybe you have an intentional experience plan of experiences you'd like to get that will help you advance your career, regardless of whatever the title might be. This is Vanessa Walls from Children's Health talking about how she got into health care and particularly found her way to Children's Health. Many of our North Texas hospitals are hiring now, so if you're interested, you should take a look at a career in health care, which we will continue to talk about when we come right back on the human side of health care.
covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Vanessa Walls from Children's Health about the career of healthcare, which is wide open right now with lots of opportunities. Steve? You know, you've had a great career and you've still got many years to come, but thus far, can you share some of the personal satisfaction stories that you've experienced thus far in your career? Sure. You know, as I think back on my career, the places where I feel like it brings a smile to my face, if you will, really revolve around working with other people. I've been fortunate to work with some amazing teams, folks where we didn't have resources and we had to figure out what we were going to do to deliver on our mission, times where we had resources, but we didn't have a clear answer. We didn't have a clear path forward and we had to figure that out. I've just been really fortunate to work with teams who share a commitment to a mission to take care of patients and to to make a difference in their lives. I've also had some of those projects, if you will, that when you finish them, you know that uh, you can take great pride in that. In a previous role, we built a new building for all of our ambulatory environment, and I use we very intentionally. I was the leader for that project, but it was multiple people involved in it. And when we were able to complete the project, stand back and look at what we've done and how we'd improved operations for our patients, our families, our employees, and gave them a new resource in this brand new building that met their needs, that was really important. And that was very satisfying. Uh, Those opportunities for a team to come together and really make a difference, those are my memories that are most satisfying. What do you think the biggest misconception is about careers in healthcare? I'll reference back to to the point I made with young careerists when I talk with them that in general, when I hear from them, they, they feel like they only have a clinical track. The only way to move into healthcare is to be, you know, maybe a nurse, a physician, a radiology technician or technologist, any, you know, any of those clinical positions. And if that is your, your strength, then certainly those are available. I would say the biggest misconception is that there are so many other parts of healthcare that would, would be available if you were to pursue those opportunities or at least explore them. And, you, you know, you may not think about the, uh, the role, for example, if you're an accountant or a finance major, that you, there's a role for that in healthcare, in revenue cycle management and things of that nature. IT, there's a huge role for IT in healthcare. So explore maybe some of those things that aren't necessarily the traditional roles in healthcare and see if something clicks for you. Thomas, do you have any questions you would like to ask Vanessa? Well, actually, I'd like to ask both of you something because you both have experience with this. So, Steve, don't go too far. I'd like to get you to weigh in on this. But both of you talked about moving around from one job to another, and now you both have been in your current positions for over 10 years. What today is the culture or the climate of moving around, changing things frequently, even changing geographic areas like you both have done versus buying a house, planting a sign saying, this is going to be my community and this is the place that I want to stay for a long time. Well, I will tell you, I think it's different for each individual. For me, we moved around a lot growing up. So the idea that I would move for a new opportunity was not foreign. It was kind of an expectation. Partly in training, too, you get told that you, you know, there are these little 
standards, if you will, that get thrown out there that say you should have three different jobs in your first five years to make sure you're advancing your career. I, I don't really subscribe to that necessarily because I think you need to have the jobs that make a difference for you in your career and not necessarily a certain number. But nonetheless, from a moving around standpoint, in my current role, that I, this is the longest I've ever worked anywhere, and I'm here because of the challenges that this organization has given me. I've done multiple different things at Children's Health and really been the beneficiary of lots of opportunity to grow my career without having to leave. A lot of times the answer to grow your career, though, is that you have to leave, whether you leave the organization or you leave the geography or both. Within DFW, there are a lot of opportunities to move around to different organizations and never, you know, and you can have your home and, uh, here and, and never leave it. That's unique. That's pretty unique. It's the only place I've ever worked that I've seen that happen. Steve, what do you think? You know, I think you raised a really good point. Each individual is a little different. I've known people that have been in healthcare and they lived in a community that was large enough that they stayed at the same hospital or the same healthcare facility for their entire career. I, on the other hand, was born and raised in rural Virginia, less than a thousand people in my hometown. So I pretty much had to start moving to get into my career. And kind of what Vanessa said, I changed and moved around, moved around to different states, different regions of the country to gain experience. And then later in my career, I settled into longer-term stints, like 10 years, 15 years. I've been here at the hospital council 15 years. But each time I moved, it was taking on a different challenge. You know, I worked in hospitals the majority of my career. I've been here 15 years, but I'm an old guy. I've been in healthcare over 45 years. So 30 of those years were in a hospital. So I think, Thomas, it's really up to the individual. I also think people especially young people when they first start out. And if they're single or maybe they have spouses, but at the same time they don't have children, they can move a lot more and advance their careers. So I think one size just doesn't fit all. Those are great answers and a lot of collective wisdom between the two of you. Vanessa, it sounds to me from the summation of this conversation there are more opportunities now in healthcare than ever. Would you say that's true on both the administrative and the clinical side? Absolutely. I think healthcare as an industry, if you want to call it that, has evolved year over year and the, and the future continues to be bright for that. But the variety has grown as well. I think there is an, a role for anybody who wants to pursue it based on their own strengths. One other question I had as you were telling us that very early part of your journey. You said that you looked at your uncle who was in hospital administration. You thought, I love the idea of me doing that. You could see it. How old were you and what chord got struck in your young heart that this would be something that you would want to dedicate your life to? Well, so I went to college and declared my major on the first day. So it, some, somewhere in that 17, 18-year-old range is when I, when I made that decision. And it's been that way from that point forward. I, I jokingly say, I don't know how to do anything else. I worked retail, so I know how to sell dresses, but I don't know how to do anything else. This is all I've ever done in my career. Looking at him and seeing where I felt like he, he got a lot of personal gratification from the role he played in being able to make a difference for others. But then he also had a career that included a great deal of 
variety and advancement. And, and that was what I wanted. You know, early in my career, I was going to be a CEO by 25. That didn't happen. And I'm glad it didn't. But it was just the example he said, if you will, that he seemed to be so happy in his career. And so from an early age, he was my example. That's such an awesome story. That is incredible. Thank you. Of course, you're welcome. Vanessa, I do have one final thought for you. What question do you wish I had asked you about a healthcare career that I didn't? The one thing as I was thinking about this conversation is, you know, what is the greatest challenge we have in healthcare today too? There are a couple that come to mind for me. There are some very specific ones in how we deliver care, and that's around behavioral health, particularly in pediatric populations. It's one of the greatest challenges we have today. Maybe that's a a piece, too, where someone who's looking at a career can consider how they might be a part of the solution for behavioral health. That's our greatest challenge. Um, Staffing is hopefully a short-term challenge for us right now, but that impacts our ability to really deliver the care we want to deliver. The, The other challenge, I would say, or the place where I want to focus, particularly here toward the last years of my career, is how do we make a difference in our diversity and inclusion efforts? And I think that's a place where healthcare really has to step up because it's a place where we need to give care that's specific to the needs of the individual patient, and that may be different depending on their background. So those are the challenges I would say if you were to ask me what they are. Vanessa Walls from Children's Health, thank you so much for your thoughts on your career path. And Steve, I know you've been well-blessed and rewarded in this field as well. Yes, I have, Thomas. It really has been a very rewarding career. I think Vanessa gave our listeners great advice and hope they'll give it serious consideration. Thank you for listening and join us next week for the human side of healthcare.